Welcome back to Work Woman. Today is an exciting day because you guys are going to geek out on the guest that I have as somebody who's coming on to Work Woman in this Forbes 30 Under 30 series. You guys are going to get the opportunity to meet Shuo Chen, who I was just telling her before the show started, I've spent hours, like hours and hours researching just all of the things that she has done. And I'm beyond impressed and you're like one of the first people that I've actually looked through that I feel like is totally 10X and you probably don't even know what 10X is, but that's something that's big in this community of listeners who watch and listen to this podcast. So without further ado, welcome Shuo Chen to the Work Woman Podcast. Shuo, how are you doing today? I am doing great and thank you so much for hosting. It is incredibly kind of you uh, to share such an introduction and I'm really excited to share more about what I'm working on, but also to learn more about the incredible work that you've done and the community that you've built. I have 45 questions here and I was like, which are the questions that I'm actually going to ask and actually give people a great starting point for who you are and what you've accomplished? So just, I guess, where were you born? Where were you raised? And how did you get started in your career? I am a fourth generation Chinese American. My great grandfather was the first one who came to the States way back uh, in 1910. He had done his PhD in education and we've kind of been back and forth as a family ever since. So I was born in Beijing myself, though my sister was born here and uh, grew up on the West Coast, uh, had spent some time in Vancouver, Canada, which is also, as I was sharing with you earlier, Natalie, where I'm spending some time now, spending time with my grandparents who are still retired in this area. And then also am based predominantly out of San Francisco Bay area. What I'm working on now full-time, I'm on the venture side. So I run an early stage fund that focuses on investing in startups based out of Silicon Valley. And I also teach as faculty at uh, UC Berkeley. How did you get started in venture capital? Really stumbled into it by chance. (laughs) Everyone stumbles into it. There's no, like when you were eight years old, I don't, I have a hard time believing anyone's like, I'm going to be a venture capitalist when I grow up. Yeah. Though I I think it would be kind of cool if that were a thing. Uh, And I say that because I really do feel like representation, especially for young girls matter a lot. I I think I'm incredibly lucky to have just seen some really cool role models when I was growing up because I would have never imagined being an investor is even a possibility had I not had that exposure later on in my career. But when I was young, I always really was a very curious child, would get myself in trouble a lot, but would get to work on just kind of cranking out different solutions to problems that other people usually deem as either giving up or impossible. And, uh, That led me down to a path of a lot of exploration where I didn't really know what I wanted to study. So took a bit of classes here and there trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And that took me down eventually the path of entrepreneurship where uh, my business partners, I together had started a company that was really selling into large universities as well as uh, large banking institutions. After our startup exited, I went into uh, work on Wall Street myself, covered technology during that time and really missed working with startups and founders. So seven years ago, came back to the venture side. 
Uh, but to, to your point earlier on representation for young kids, for role models growing up, I do think it would be so cool if uh, someone listening to this would go back and talk to, say, their kids and say, you know, there are so many cool careers. Let me give you a sense of what might be possible. That would be so cool. How do most people even stumble into it, right? It's like, unless your parents are having this conversation with you or to what you said, role models, like there are people that you know in this space, venture capital seems like it's almost this untouchable, smart person, smart and well-connected person's uh, career path. It doesn't, it doesn't seem just from the, I guess, PR around it, like it's very accessible to people. And my guess is you would probably argue that it's absolutely accessible to anybody who was interested in, in going down that path. Absolutely. Absolutely accessible. Not easy to access, though. So those are two slightly different things. And I say that because I'm a former founder and now I invest in founders. So that has certainly made the accessibility piece easier because when we look at companies, I can relate to what it was like when I was running a company myself. Whereas uh, I, I think with hard work, it's possible to get in for folks who come from more untraditional backgrounds where they didn't have the luxury of getting exposure to venture capital, for example, during their earlier operating days. They had bootstrapped the whole thing, for example. They might not have had the same ease of accessibility to if they wanted to become an investor. So one of the things that I do now outside of my full-time investing role is um, serving on the board of this nonprofit that we had helped co-found, where one of the programs that we run is a venture fellowship program for folks who are 10 plus years into their respective careers, never had exposure to venture, now heard about venture for the first time and want to get involved in some capacity. And we help those folks make a career switch or at least learn more about what venture capital is like and how to get involved. So spectacular. I I mean, I have questions for you about how you prioritize everything that you're doing. I want to wait. I want to give those like tidbits later in the podcast because I'm so fascinated by this idea of how somebody gets started in VC, but then also the, the person listening to this, like the audience member who is like on their drive, on their run, maybe working out, maybe taking a walk, whatever the person is doing right now is likely a business owner, a small business owner. So Cardo Ventures and the company that I work with, um, this is who we help. We help the small business owner in specifically the United States of America, help grow their business from likely they're starting at a million dollar business. They've probably had their business for a handful of years. It might even be a family business and they have aspirations to grow their business from 1 million to 5 million and then from 5 million to 10 million. Uh, and so they're listening to this podcast in order to understand how do they go about scaling and growing their business. And we normally go through this very traditional route of how do you optimize your people and how do you add marketing to the equation that actually targets the right customer so that you get more sales that grows your business. But on the VC side, how does that become accessible to a small business owner operating in today's climate? Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, first of all, really incredible work that you've done to build this community and to everyone who's listening. I, I, as a former founder, always admire people who go 
choose to take the difficult route and choose to start their own business. Starting from zero and from scratch is always one of the most difficult things. Uh, and even trying to bring innovation into, for example, a family business is not easy at all. It's certainly a lot easier to work for someone else. So really kudos. And uh, to answer your question about how to learn more about venture capital, I think now with is particularly post the pandemic with a lot more things going virtual, there's a lot more accessible content than ever before. If you wanted to learn about venture capital as an industry or even emerging technologies and figure out I know you mentioned 10x, um, and, and I'm not sure if this is the same context in which you use it, but how emerging technologies could uh, help scale a business 10x and leverage the power of technology to automate things and bring in um, uh, more uh, optimization to a company than ever before. So uh, one of the top resources that I personally always enjoy is going to all of these major universities that are known for their technology and innovation hubs. And I say that because a university is a great way of attracting talent, not just at an early stage from college level students, but all the way up to executive programs uh, to for folks who are working in large scale institutions. So you have a widespread uh, a spectrum of content that may be interesting and are relevant. So I would certainly recommend looking at your local university or um, your local educational institution and trying to figure out what uh, in-person or even virtual uh, events and activities are going on. So the nonprofit that I mentioned earlier that has the Venture Fellowship Program, I have the fortune of serving on this board. This nonprofit is called Decode. It is affiliated with Berkeley and Stanford. It's it started really out as the largest technology and innovation community that's co-hosted between Berkeley and Stanford. But since the pandemic have really scaled and grown way beyond the two universities. And there's a ton of conversations that happen within this particular ecosystem that are really interesting and are oftentimes extending across multiple communities. For example, if you want to learn about venture capital as specific to blockchain and cryptocurrencies, well, there's plenty of recent conversations there around that. You want to learn about venture, particularly as it applies to education technologies um, and how to scale up an education startup. There's a ton of conversation around there. So for folks who are interested, it's definitely possible to find videos available on YouTube, online. Beyond nonprofits and universities, I think another really good channel is to directly go onto the websites and platforms of all of these funds. More funds than ever before are more public about how they invest, what they invest in, and sometimes might even share some of the investment memos that they've written to conduct analysis on the kinds of companies that they're looking at. So I think it's a great way of leveraging that to learn about what is venture capital, how does venture capital work, and what are best practices to leverage. One of the videos I watched was you talking about the blockchain. And one of the things as I talk to small business owners daily that I think that there's this gap between is like how small business could leverage that sort of technology as you're talking through innovative technologies. How does the mindset of a small business owner shift to even having the acknowledgement that that is something that is accessible to me. Therefore, I'm going to go learn about this new thing that could help my business before it's, you know, not, not that it's too late, but before it's so widely used that it's forced upon people and it just becomes commonplace. Like how could they get a little bit of an edge and change that mindset earlier? 
Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you asked that question because it's all about how do we give small business owners somewhat of an unfair advantage or a competitive edge ahead of everyone else, right? So I, I love that mindset. I think a lot of it is about digesting or breaking down a big idea into digestible pieces. So for example, with something like blockchain, I think there's a lot more conversation now in mainstream media than ever before, but still very few people have taken the steps to just hands-on go beyond buy a Bitcoin or buy Ethereum to say, how can I think about using that in my respective business? I do think it is picking your battles. And once you pick something that sounds interesting that you want to learn more about, then figuring out how can I make this so small that it's something that I can commit to doing. And it could be so Mm -hmm. small as to let me sign up to attend an event live and actually show up. And once I show up, let me actually ask a question. And once I ask a question, let me take the pains of following up with the speaker afterwards. So you would be surprised how many people are openly sharing their contact information online or how easily reachable they are on LinkedIn. And you would also, for the average listener, I think they would be surprised how few people typically reach out after an event. So I can tell you from firsthand experience that I'm speaking to an audience of, say, a thousand people live all at the same time. Even if I encourage people to reach out, I'll get a handful of people around a dozen who actually follow up on email, even if I've shared my email broadly. And out of the dozen people, maybe like two to three will follow up again afterwards. So that really tells you how few people are taking the initiative and the proactivity to really have a conversation. I think if you find a technology area or a particular concept or a new business model to be really interesting, Find events that are relevant to that. Make sure that you show up to the event live. Ask a speaker a question. Be memorable in engaging with that question and really follow up. I love everything about what you just said because the way that our business got started was my husband and I showing up to this conference called Growth Conference. There were 35,000 people at this conference and it was hosted by a world-renowned sales and marketing and real estate expert. And we sat in the second row where we were very visible. My husband wore sparkly shoes. He loved sparkly (laughs) shoes. I'm so glad he is over the sparkly shoe thing now. (laughs) We met people, we talked to people, and then we formed this business partnership. Most of the game is actually just showing up to an event. And it sounds so silly and like, okay, what event do I go to? But once you pick that target, and then you get around people who are talking about it, it is wild how accessible information and people really are. And it's cool to see that that's also, I feel like the spaces that we operate in are, are very different, but it's it's still the, the resounding advice that, that you're also giving as well. That is so true. And it's really cool to hear how you started as well. And I'm sure you can attest to the fact that in the early days, I'm sure going to an event and even talking to people feels quite intimidating because you don't know what the other person's reaction is going to be. Um, And if I had to share a very tangible piece of advice that helped me get over that is thinking about where I can potentially add value. And I think in my early days, all I did was show up to events and just offer my time to be helpful, even if it's as small as helping the event organizer move chairs around or help coordinate logistics. And I think it's just by offering some of the most basic things, but showing consistency to willingness to do that, that makes a huge difference. 
Okay. I have to pivot this just a little bit because one thing that I am just like fascinated by and totally a fan of when it comes to you is your confidence. And I think the listeners can hear it in your answers and your ability to be uh, succinct while also deliver impactful information. Confidence is a difficult thing to build for so many people. I would love to know your story about, have you always been this confident? Something I'm incredibly grateful for is how ever since a very young age, my parents have done an amazing job of encouraging failure. I remember whenever I would do poorly on something, even if it's a bad grade or I had to do a group project and it didn't go well, every time I feel like they went above and beyond to celebrate all the failures. And so I I think that's intrinsically linked to confidence in many ways because it's possible for you to be bad at something without you as a person just being bad. It's so important to separate who you are and what you do. Even uh, I think oftentimes, especially as founders, we link our personal identities so much with what we do that if the work that we do doesn't go well, that we also personally take a huge hit to our confidence. And I think it's just so important to separate the two, even if they're intrinsically linked brands. I wouldn't say by any stretch that confidence is something that I'm really good at, but rather I I think over time I've learned to distinguish between what I do and how I can iterate on that, build on that and become better over time while simultaneously not having failures be a huge hit to, to who I am. When you do have those failures and they're not like those superficial ones that are like, oh, I'll just dust myself off. But there's something that like you really wanted or you were applying for going for. And there's that rejection. Do you have kind of a process that you go through where you just work through the handling of the, the rejection or the obstacle that you're, you're overcoming? Absolutely. I I think if we don't ever have moments of huge disappointment or something that we really want, it doesn't go through, it probably means that the kind of things that we're trying to do hasn't been hard enough, right? So if we try to strive for something really hard, inevitably we will hit a brick wall and have it not work plenty of the times. I think one of the important things to keep in mind is what did I not do well enough that time? Or what can I improve on from the previous time? And if I feel like I had done everything right and the outcome was just not in my control, no regrets whatsoever. And because I think there is a difference between process versus outcome. We can only control the process and the outcome. Sometimes it is a matter of luck. So is there really, for example, if we're applying for a job, is there really a tangible difference between the top, say, three people who get a job, the third person and the fourth person? It's not as clear that there is an obvious difference. I was even having this conversation uh, the other day with a very close friend. We were looking at research in this space that said, oftentimes, uh, if we're looking at grants that are given out or startups that receive funding or people who get jobs, you look at the top number of people who have gotten it versus the immediate runner-ups who would have gotten it but didn't get it. In the long term, you actually see people who didn't get it with more success because Mm -hmm. they have more of a chip on their shoulder and they work even harder at getting to where they need to be. So I personally see every single time where it hasn't worked out as one point in time in a much longer time horizon where I have then more time to keep trying and do better. Oh, I love that so much. It makes me happy to hear you say that it's self-created. I just, 
I feel like even when things start to go well and there's success in an area, I know what has been successful for me in the past is, is having the feeling of a chip being on my shoulder or having the feeling of this pressure for whatever the next thing is. And so sometimes I think it's easy for people to look at people who've accomplished a lot and think, oh, well, maybe they handle it in this like beautifully happy way. And there's no rejection and things aren't hard. And I think people could very easily mistaken your just accomplishments as something that might've been an easy road for you, where I'm certain that that's not the case. And you have to figure out the way to leverage and utilize the chip on your shoulder in whatever form it comes to you, even though it might come to you in a different way than it comes to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so having grown up in, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, I actually had attended college in the U.S. as an international student. And mm-hmm. I just remember working seven to eight different part-time jobs at any point in time during college wow. to try to pay for tuition and room and board. Whereas a lot of the other friends who had attended the same school, they had been local students. And as a result, they just paid at least 10x less tuition and had not just nearly as many things that they needed to do to just pay for tuition. And I think that's just one of many things. Each of us have our own struggles. Some people uh, are born with certain disabilities. Others are born with certain family structures. And I think we all have these different experiences that uniquely shape who we are. Outside of work, a lot of uh, my time at least within the space of giving back has been really spent on mental health related topics. And I think for folks who are born with mental health challenges or born into a family with mental health challenges, that's a whole slew of different circumstances that you grow up with. So I think it's so important to think about what's possible, not from a, what does my circumstances allow me to, but rather where can I go? And then I think this is really going back to first principles. What do I want to do? And then let me take the small steps to getting there Um, rather than, well, given these limitations, I don't think that's a possibility. I'll back out. I think that's a lot of uh, how you talk to yourself is so important. I think being kind to yourself and telling yourself that everything is possible is a very important piece of the story too. I, I wouldn't say by any stretch that my career path was certain. In fact, it was really from these challenges during uh, school that I had realized a lot of other people also struggled the same way that I did, where Mm -hmm. they needed to work multiple part-time jobs. They didn't know how to negotiate for rent. They had no idea how auto loans worked. And it's from there that my first startup had emerged. And that kind of threw me into the world of entrepreneurship and investing in entrepreneurs. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your first venture came to be? I know you just gave us a little sprinkling of that, but tell us more about what the business did and how you structured it. Yeah. So I had two other really good friends during school where I realized that three of us, whenever we got together, talked about very similar challenges where I was working a ton of different part-time jobs. Another one of my friends was what working um, in the dorms to cover for room and board. Another really good friend was on a scholarship, but the scholarship wasn't attached to a specific amount. And as tuition went up, it made 
the school less and less affordable for her. So the three of us would get together on a regular basis and just share best practices with each other. How did you negotiate something as small as a phone bill all the way up to, do you have any hacks for thinking about how student loans work? We came to a point in time where we realized that student loans were, uh, for the very first time in history, exceeding uh, auto loans in the U.S. So we realized that it really wasn't a small thing and we wanted to do more. Can we just design a course that would share our learnings and best practices that we would share with each other to other students in the same school? So we went to our faculty members written up this proposal for why we think a course on money management and financial literacy is so important. Eventually, ended up pushing through this course and got a room allotted to us for 35 people for the semester. We had no idea how to do any marketing. So we just kind of put this Google form out there and really without any marketing at all on our behalf. And it was just organic word of mouth. We had almost 400 applications come in for the class. And even after we emailed everyone saying we didn't have space in the class, we still had about 170 people show up on the first day of class trying to cram into this <laughs> tiny 30 person classroom. And so that's when we realized that there was an opportunity here for us to turn this potentially into a much bigger business where we would start by teaching content as well as turn this into software so that we could provide similar curriculum for other universities as well as for other financial institutions. We had no idea how sales worked. And in the very early days, we would just cold call people, show up to conferences, try to be very proactive, try to find the best point of contact, ask for referrals and intros wherever we can, and really rely off of the kindness of people who are willing to guide us and show us where we go. And one of the things that till this day, I absolutely do myself and very much appreciate about the culture in Silicon Valley is that it's all about bringing people up with you. So you can absolutely cold outreach to someone on LinkedIn and expect that they might be willing to grab a coffee with you and share how they had gotten there because they had also gotten there from help of other strangers and really from kindness of others. So we had learned so much during that time and ended up selling into a lot of large banks, including Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. We also got a ton of no's from amazing companies too. And we didn't really understand why at the beginning. So wherever possible, we would ask people for feedback. Like we really respect your answer. We just love to hear why this wasn't the right fit for you at this time. We sold into universities, we sold into these banks and learned a ton from this process. So it was really from here that I had even any exposure to the world of finance and banks. And prior to this, it just felt like something that was really far away. I had thought that I might become a historian or go into some sort of public policy field um, prior to this. So I think it also tells us how great life can be when we take our paths down for unexpected turns. Is such an incredible story. When you put that with, okay, you were founder in this, and that has to now give you such insight into the investment strategies that you are now deploying as a general partner. Do you pronounce it IOVC? Yes, you got it perfectly. So IOVC. Um, mm-hmm. 
So we, our acronym stands for, of course, Innovation Overflow um, Venture Capital. And we, this is a very geeky name, named after Stack Overflow, which is a platform where engineers and programmers will go on to, to share advice with each other. Uh, and the reason why we had named after this is because we think people in entrepreneurship and in investing need to learn, share, and build together as well. So um, we had previously been branded as Agile VC because we wanted to be very quick moving. What we realized was that the word was Agile. It was very difficult to pronounce in some foreign cultures. And so we eventually rebranded ourselves to four phonetic letters. I share this very short story because I think in my earlier in my career, I had overlooked how important marketing and branding was to any sort of platform, brand, or community. And I think this is something that I learned so much about from picking what I thought was a really cool name, calling ourselves Agile VC, to realizing that it's important to be inclusive in our target audience and in facing a very diverse audience to rebranding and all of that, learn so much from the experience. What would you say the biggest takeaway that you've had over, let's see, how long have you, have you been IOVC? So you're years. six years in, seven six years. Six years in, seven years, including the planet year. Which definitely counts. <laughs> the planning year is probably the hardest year I would imagine. Was it, is that true? Or is it, is it harder as it grows? How is that? kind of changed over the last seven years? You know, I think people think that um, it gets easier over time. I feel like every year it's tackling new challenges and that's what makes this job so much fun. I think investing in entrepreneurs is inspiring in many ways. One, we get to work with some of the most inspiring and smartest people. Number two, we get to learn from their best practices and help share our experiences with them to hopefully help other early stage entrepreneurs and founders avoid the same mistakes that we had made in the past. And I think three investors, what they really do is put their money where their mouth is and invest money into what the future can and should look like. It's a responsibility that we take very seriously as well, because if we want to build a future that is more inclusive, that is more innovative, that is better, then we really have to think long and hard about what we're doing now so that we can get there in X number of years. So I think we spend a lot of time thinking about what can the future look like? What should the future look like? What criteria are we following? Are we investing? If we want to see a future that is diverse, are we investing and backing in diverse founders? So all of those are things that I think I'm incredibly lucky to get to do. In fact, the other day I was having a conversation with a very close friend and we were talking about if we had to summarize our jobs in verbs, what would be some of the top things that we would say? And I think in my job, really the top things are to meet people and to learn. When you think about your role compared to the other um, team members in your organization, how would you prioritize and kind of structure what you do day to day versus what you're not excited about doing because it's either not your strength uh, or there are people that are just better suited in your environment to do those things? I realized over time that there are things that I'm incredibly good at, but there's also many, many other things that I am just horrible at. So I think finding the right business partners who can check your blind spots and who can really help support you in those ways are so important. So I, I've realized over time that there's a few things that I'm not good at. Number one, um, I am not very good at 
having really short conversations with people. I love getting to know people in depth. I love understanding how they grew up, who they are, how they were shaped to be who they are. And uh, I love finding out the background stories, the less told things. I love asking about what didn't make it into your pitch deck, what almost made it, but that you took it out and how does that work? I love doing that. At the same time, I think my business partner is really good at keeping to time and making sure that we hit the milestones that we need to in reasonable time. So I think being able to identify strengths and weaknesses and realizing what you're good at and finding someone else who can help check for those spots are so important. So I'm incredibly lucky to have met my business partner and to be able to work with him across all of these years. So I think that's something really important to think about. One of the things in my entrepreneurship class at Berkeley that I always start by sharing with folks is that oftentimes in entrepreneurship, the average time it takes to an exit of some sort, whether it is getting acquired or going public even, or coming to a place where you're getting to stable revenue, where you have somewhat of a scalable business model, where you don't have to work as hard. Um, that average time period for entrepreneurs is about 10 years. And that is longer than the average American marriage, which means that whatever (laughs) it is that you do, finding the right business partner in many ways is harder than finding the person that you want to marry because you really have to be certain that this person is a right fit across all of these different ways. Mm -hmm. So I I like framing it, especially for students this way, um, particularly college level and, and graduate level students, because I think it's important to think about life and career on a very long term, decades long term kind of time axes rather than just in the span of months or years. So smart. And, you know, especially with you having started the, is it Cashify? Is that Mm -hmm. the, I'm sure you had just, no one was teaching you at that time, operating agreements and how the formal structure, unless they were, were they, did you have that like just totally tight and clean from an equity structure standpoint? You know, I think first time around, everybody makes similar mistakes. And um, (laughs) so I think in our case, uh, well, now I think there's a ton of content out there where it's possible to see just general best practices for how to lay out equity structures and all of that. I would say back when we had started the company, there wasn't too much information out there. There was a clear majority shareholder, which was great because we need a clear decision maker to break ties, if any, and uh, to make decisions moving forward. And um, I do think it's important to figure out over time what you prefer as well. Some people think that it's important for them to be the CEO and to call the shots. But at the same time, they might not yet be in a place where they feel really comfortable with making all of these big decisions. So I think having a serious self-reflective conversation or thinking session where Mm -hmm. you really ask yourself, do I want to call the shots? Is it helpful? Is it better for the business in order to call the shots? I think those are all really important pieces. Uh, But to answer your question directly, I don't know, other than the fact that we had a clear majority shareholder, I don't know that we followed best practices for how to do equity. And that's kind of the cool thing. And you see this, I'm sure every single day where when you're starting a company, it's really the last thing that you're thinking about, Mm -hmm. unless you are, you know, just, you've done this before you're sophisticated, but when some of these 
earlier startups take place and really start to form, or even, you know, a family business that just gets passed down from kid to kid um, or from parent to kid, there's just not a lot of thought because the reality is the business is in many cases starting because they're trying to solve a need in the marketplace. And they're not thinking about how do I create wealth? How do I exit this? How do I structure this to allow for a board and executives and just team members to be able to help. It's just kind of bootstrapping and and figuring it out, which is what's so cool about starting a business, but then also what can be scary when it comes to the things that you just, you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. And what makes being a founder, whether you're running a small, medium-sized enterprise or you're running a technology-enabled startup, either way, what's most exciting is that you get to explore the unknown, right? Because you don't know what you don't know, it's a fun process to start figuring out what the rest of the world might look like. Yeah, or else I would think it'd just be paralyzing if if it was any other way, because if if you really knew... If you had an idea of what you don't know, I think most people would just not even want to go down that path because there are so many stories of just challenging predicaments that people find themselves in because they don't necessarily know. And ideally, there are people out there who are giving guidance and advice and sharing wisdom and getting the attention of people so that they can at least structure it properly so that no relationships are ruined and nothing, nothing bad happens. But unfortunately, it's just not... It's not the reality yet today. To add on to the last point that you shared, it just as a personal uh, thing that I do, if it's relevant for all the listeners, I like to think about my habits in two buckets, uh, consumptive habits versus productive habits. A lot of the times we fall into this default of consumptive habits, like I love food and I consume a lot of food or I love movies and I consume a lot of movies. And I, over time, what I've tried to do is think about where I'm being productive. For example, if I eat really good food and I write up a note, uh, even if it's posting on Yelp, for example, um, as like a mini food critic, I think that is a small act of producing something. Or if I love movies and I write a small commentary about my thoughts on the movie, that's being productive in a way. It doesn't even have to be as small as that. It could be as small or as big as something that is core related to the company that you're running. But I bring that up because on this topic of we don't know what we don't know, if we just dedicate a small portion, even if it's like this week or for once a year, I'm going to dedicate myself to productive habits of learning about something and writing something about this new thing that I've learned. I think that really brings us very far, even if it's not something that we repeat on a monthly basis, but like once a year, that's a really great way of helping us explore what we don't know that we don't know. I love that. I'm going to use that. That is fantastic consumptive versus productive habits and literally taking a note on my stickies as you talk. I have two final questions. First question, walk us through a brief overview of a day in your life. So I've always had more of a sporadic schedule. I am just by nature, a very energetic person. So I can function well on not a lot of sleep. So I used to just have back-to-back meetings all day and then keep on going until really late at night and then ready for bed. And that's a day. But over time, I've learned so much from 
just how to run and structure a better schedule. Now, what I try to do is wake up early, um, ideally before everyone else is up. So I have a, t- I have time to uh, really reflect on what my top priorities are for the day and hopefully get to inbox zero. And I try yeah. to do deeper work earlier during the day rather than meetings, because those are some of my productive, most productive hours. And then later on from afternoon onwards, when I usually would start to get tired, I try to do meetings then because I derive a lot of energy from meeting with other people. So I try to schedule things that I get a lot of energy out of when I am most tired. And then towards evening time, it's, uh, you know, again, doing follow-ups or any to-do items as a result of the meetings that I did in the afternoon. And then of course, towards the end of the day, I try to set up time, set aside for exercise, for walking my dog, for spending quality time with family, for just enjoying outdoor time in nature. Um, And then I try to have no screen time for about an hour prior to going to bed. That's the ideal schedule. I don't know how much of my time I've managed to stick to that schedule. Uh, I'm very good at being spontaneous and haven't been as good at sticking to routines, but that is what I'm striving towards. Uh, The last thing I would add on this is that one of the top things I'd learned from a mentor years ago that brought a lot more peace to my mind is this Uh, concept of a weighted average week. So instead of trying to get to the perfect day every single day and hitting all of these things in a day, that's just too much pressure. So I learned from her to think about my week being weighted over time so that today, maybe I've done great on work tomorrow. Maybe I do great on exercise the day after, maybe I'm great at family and quality time with my significant other. And over the course of a week, I would have hit all the major things that I wanted to hear uh, that I wanted to hit. And that significantly takes pressure off of having to have a perfect day and being able to focus on different priorities throughout a week. Amazing. I've never heard of that, but I really like that so that you don't necessarily feel like you've just blown a whole day just because you didn't do two of the five things or two of the six things. I like that. What's next for you when you look at your career over the next five to 10 years? Tell us about where you see the future, where you see your work leading and what you're excited about that you're working on right now. Venture capital is really a long-term commitment. So you wouldn't really go and become an investor unless that's what you knew you wanted to do for at least the next decade. So for me, as far as I could see ahead, continuing to be an investor and growing to hopefully be a better investor and more value added to the entrepreneurs that we do work with is definitely a long-term career goal. Outside of my full-time role on the venture side and just learning and becoming better. I definitely want to continue to give back by educating. So I've always taught part-time outside of my different roles. And I do think it is extremely rewarding of an experience because now I feel like I learn way more from my students than I'm teaching sometimes. So I get about now, at least in my faculty role at Berkeley, I get about 60% undergrads and 40% grad students. The grad students are more quote unquote normally aged, whereas my undergrad students, I get everything from students who are born in 04 and 05, and they are incredibly young, but also incredibly inspiring. 
Many of them have had prior startup experience, have even exited from companies or have interned at all of these amazing companies. I look at them and I feel so much more optimistic about where the future of the world is going. They're very mission-driven. They are uh, extremely passionate about what they do, energetic about changing the world for the better. And all of that, I continue, I hope I can continue to give back in that way and continue to be inspired by and learn from all of my students. So when I look forward in my career, definitely continuing to be an investor and then teaching as well as learning in my role as faculty. It's amazing. Well, where can the listeners find you? What is the best place for them to connect with you? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if I can be helpful with anything that any of the listeners are working on, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I really do mean that. Um, And in addition to that, um, I mentioned earlier, I sit on the board of Decode. If anyone is interested in volunteering, getting involved, what I think is incredibly cool is that for all the events that we do, there's always both a public facing component as well as a private roundtable discussion segment where for all the speakers that we've brought in, and we've brought in some really cool people, including the CEO and founder of Zoom, the CEO of Google X, and just really, really cool people in the space that are uh, driving the frontiers of technology and innovation. Uh, We had the founder of Siri a while ago. They always do a very small roundtable at the end of the public facing event where it's just a handful of less than a dozen people and they get to interact in a very small group setting with our speaker. So if anyone who is listening here is just interested in getting involved and participating in these smaller group gathering sessions, I think that's another great way to plug in. And of course, any university network will always have classes that are open. Uh, Berkeley, for example, I have a ton of folks who have audited or sat in on my classes. So I always encourage people to reach out if they're interested in plugging in in any way. And I'm really excited to continue to see where you take your community as well, because I think this is really meaningful work that you do. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your expertise. I know the listeners are going to love this. Make sure to subscribe to check out everything that she is up to connect with her and follow her on LinkedIn. Shuo Chen, it has been such an honor, such a pleasure. Thank you for being on Workwoman and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Natalie.